So beautiful, so poignant, so important. Uh, a lot of people are unfamiliar uh, with Kramer's work, but you can't be if you grew up around here. Um, that's for sure. And I'll tell you, I know what he wanted from the media uh, as part of the responsibility and the legacy of responsibility. And as an observer of your work for many years, you were part of that living legacy, Anderson. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that we're also proud of the journalism. I don't know about that, but thank you. You do now. Uh, thank you for reminding us of the loss. Have a great night, my friend. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. It's a sad night. I don't know any other way to put it. I don't even like that the music's playing, to be honest. It's just three months. We've lost 100,000 lives. Do you really need band music to tell you that it's something urgent? We were told that this pandemic would magically disappear without any real trouble. A couple dozen cases. Today, did you hear what our president, Donald John Trump, said to calm our nerves? and reassure that the size of this loss so far will not define our fate going forward, that we will do everything we can to keep us safe as we reopen, and that he will make it his life's focus because that's what a president does. Did you hear him say that? Me either. Not a damn word from Trump as this country is just struggling to get our heads and our hearts, let alone our hands, around processing such loss so quickly, suddenly he is now at a loss. Not even a tweet. Listen, don't come here tonight for more obsession on this BS distraction about what Trump says he's gonna do to Twitter or any of the social media platform. It's a bluff, all right? Don't be a sucker, I'm not. Here we're gonna focus on real righteous indignation. Why do we still not know how to reopen safely? How do we make sure that the painful cost that we mark tonight at least comes with some renewed sense of purpose to do more and better? Tell us, Mr. President, be enraged and engaged on this. Real victims, not painting yourself as a victim. You're no victim of nothing except your own mouth. The executive action you keep talking about taking, take it on this. Take on doing what we need. This is a country in a paroxysm of pain from a pandemic and now reeling from another black man killed by police. Protesters are back on the streets of Minneapolis and we're gonna be watching, but more importantly, we're gonna push for answers and justice. We've got new information for you tonight. We've got a witness. I want you to hear what he says so you can understand the situation. What do you say, my brothers and sisters? Let's get after it. Six digits. 100,000 lives claimed by this virus. And no, it's not just some picked milestone. Six digits, that's a magic number. No, it's not somehow different in terms of degree of gravity from 99,909. The amount of death is staggering. The number of arguably preventable deaths in that number should grab your gut. And the most wrenching part of this reality is that President Donald John Trump has not said a damn word about it. This is his concern. Twitter finally flagging some of his BS about mail-in voting. He's lying. They don't do enough of this. This whole thing is a distraction and you know it. All our feeds blew up about it. Now some fugazi figment of an executive order is supposed to be coming. You're being played. See it for what it is. It checks every box of his badness. Lying, 
spends a lot of time praising despotic dudes like Kim Jong-un and Putin who have authoritarian grips on their countries. They could shut down a Twitter, but he doesn't have the power that he desires and what he sees in them. He doesn't have the power to overrule states on reopening or to override them on churches. And he doesn't have the power to regulate or close a social media company. Should read the damn constitution. And they don't have the power probably either. If you're gonna take any action, it would have to be Congress. But the First Amendment's pretty clear on their limitations as well. Look, Trump is not a king, except maybe in his own fantasy land. He can't do anything to Twitter, except, except use it to do something to great effect. Bravo, sir. Bravo. You distracted us from the dead and the dire situation that you're basically ignoring because you think reopening at any price is a price worth paying for your reelection. Well, not here. Not here. You're not going to forget those faces from all those places. You're not going to remain silent. You're going to be brought up and into the conversation. You are in play, Mr. President. This pandemic. This is the kind of thing, a concern that should define and consume a presidency. But Mr. President, you will be defined by your indifference to the plan, the dire consequences, the indifference to the deaths. No plan to stop them anytime soon. No national testing and tracing strategy. People begging you to do it. Better minds around you trying to fit a way to get it in. But you liberate the states and it's all going to be fine. Worse than what he isn't doing is what he's doing instead. Lying to you about COVID's capability early on. And now that we're trying to reopen and clinging to this simple act of minimal separation, which can actually keep us safe and cut this pandemic short. That's in the White House's models. It's not out of my mouth. Just wearing a damn mask. Even that. Even that Trump has chosen to oppose. Forget about not making it a big enough deal, not making MAGA masks and keep America safe masks and cashing in. Does that so well, but not here. Why? Why? Ask yourself, why? Think about it. Why would he make masks a right and left issue when they are just reasonable? Why would he do it? Mocking people who wear them as a function of political correctness? There's only one reason. He believes the more real this virus, the more it slows down reopening America. Reopening is key to his reelection. That's all he cares about. He does not care about you. Bring it on. I know. Here comes the hate parade. Back your boy. I get it. I respect you as the base. I understand your frustration. I understand why you're mad at the governors and the governance. I get it. And I get that you see him as an agent of your pain and your outrage. He is not doing what you think he is doing. Things are not getting better. There is a shameful indifference that pales only in the light of his latest slight. A hundred thousand dead and a president says nothing. Is that really who you want as the agent of your outrage, as someone to go in there and make a difference? Not even a tweet. What is Trump ultimately doing? He's playing the victim to you, his base. Spouting off baseless claims. He is a demagogue. He knows you are angry. He knows you are scared. 
and he is using it on you. He is focusing on what divides us at a time that we are already dangerously divided. This is a moment that is begging for somebody to bring us together. Contrast Trump's silence. First of all, when is he ever silent, let alone on a day like today? With Joe Biden's sympathy for the country's loss. Listen to Biden. There are moments in our history so grim, so heartrending, that they're forever fixed in each of our hearts, a shared grief. Today is one of those moments. This isn't some pitch for Biden. You know, I want to ask you, those who say, you know, Biden, you know, he doesn't have it. What is a president supposed to do on a day like today? Why does that come so naturally to him and our president is silent? What does it tell you if Biden, in your opinion, isn't up to the task, but he's able to do that? And the guy who you think is so great is quiet? Listen, from the base to the open-minded, I keep telling you, we have to lean on each other in this. We will not be led out of this by Washington. It's not going to happen. It would have happened by now. We must do it together as ever as one. I know it's trite, but it is true. The question we start with tonight is the only one that matters. We want to reopen. We want to get better. How? That's where we start. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, we bring him in, our best resource. Thank you. There is something coming across the wires that people could hear, the printer. You don't get more urgent than that. Um, Two big things crossing the wire. Uh, Three takeaways from what we're calling the six-foot study. Uh, That six feet, the distance itself, may not be the prophylactic uh, we thought. Let's start with that. Um, you've seen what there is to see at this point from this study. The idea that six feet, we're wrong about it. It's not as good a solution in itself. Do you buy it? Well, I I think that the uh, six feet thing was always a a bit arbitrary. I mean, six feet is not a magic number. I think what this paper, uh, which was published in Science, is really making the case about is saying you've got to consider the environment overall. So, Chris, who are your close contacts? When you, when you were diagnosed, they probably tried to figure out who are your close contacts. Some are obvious. But what really constitutes close contact? Part of it is with someone that you spent uh, time with within six feet, that you spent at least 15 minutes with, a person that was not wearing a mask. You start to add all these things in together. But I think what really came out of this paper is saying, look, if you're inside in a small space and you're less than, or if you're, even if you're greater than six feet away from somebody who has the virus, you may still be at risk. Mm-hmm. It may be influenced by that smallness of space, it may be influenced by how the air is traveling through that space, outside's gonna be better, all these things. I, I, I think it's, it's hard to apply certainty here, Chris. Right. I, I get it, people want certainty. Uh, is it six feet or six feet two inches? It's never gonna be that easy. But by abiding by the, you know, the basic principles, you're still going right. to greatly mitigate the, the spread. And look, you know, look, my takeaway from this paper is the unknown is very dangerous here. And the more we learn, none of it is comforting. Uh, and it just adds to the urgency to me. You got to pay attention to this. You got to stop fighting that fatigue that it's got to be over now. This has got to be the end of it. When we keep learning things that are troubling. All right, six feet's not enough. Uh, it's somewhat arbitrary. We got to figure it out. And why? because indoor spreading is so dangerous, and now they added another feature to it. Not only are we denser, you know, more packed in, less proximity, that six-foot point, but something that they call aerosolization. 
um, what it can do in the air. What does this paper suggest about it? Do you buy it? Yeah, so if you think about the respiratory droplets, you think about someone uh, who's either talking or sneezing or coughing, and you have a little bit of virus in the, in the droplets. It's not doesn't go very far, typically falls to ground. People might touch a contaminated surface. If you are talking about true aerosolization, a lot of uh, scientists uh, will describe that as the viral particles actually sort of get suspended like dust. You ever look at a sunbeam going through the room, you see all the dust in there. If the virus can sort of get to attach to those dust particles, it's sort of aerosolized and then can spread more freely around the room and further distances. Uh, most of the virus seems to be within these respiratory droplets. I think that part is still true. But again, what these scientists are suggesting based on their models is that there are some viral particles that do get attached to this dust, they get suspended, and they can move around the room. How uh, pathogenic, I mean, how sick those viral particles can make somebody, we still don't know. As you point out, Chris, we're still learning along the way. But it makes this case, I think the case that you're making in the beginning of the, year of the show, if you have limited information, if you don't have certainty, how do you then act? How do you make decisions in, in a situation where you have limited information? Many countries around the world where, where they have hundreds of deaths, not even thousands, let alone 100,000 deaths, they just acted aggressively. They had the same information as we did. They didn't have a magic therapeutic. They didn't have a vaccine. They had the exact same information we did. So how, how do you make these decisions? All the questions you're asking tonight are going to help inform how we make these decisions going forward. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you are a gift. Thank you very much for being with me tonight. All right. New Jersey remains second only to New York in the number of coronavirus deaths in America. And it's not it's not about blame. It makes sense. Uh, it's right next to New York. They're a huge travel hub. It's a big state. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of commerce. Governor Phil Murphy warns that the crisis mode of the pandemic is not over. But he's also sharing some optimism as he is doing his best to reopen safely. Next. We all know the risk with taking the summer off, right? The less we do with distancing now and dealing with the virus directly, the concern is that we're gonna pay for it in the fall. A second wave is not an if, it's uh, how bad is it? And the answer to that is going to depend on our tolerance for the restrictions that come with what we all want to get reopened, to get restarted, to get back. Now, where you're gonna see that tolerance tested first will be in states with more density. Right. So let's discuss that with the governor of one of those places, New Jersey's Phil Murphy. Governor, God bless you and your family. It's good to have you back. Chris, it's great to be back. You look great. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. What did you learn uh, from the Memorial Day weekend about where people in your state are, uh, what works, what needs to be tweaked? Listen, we've had the, the uh, several weeks of good data on hospitalizations and ICU beds and ventilator use. So we've been able to begin to gradually open things up. Uh, we had the beaches open for the weekend. We didn't learn as much as I would hope because the weather was lousy. Uh, so uh, notwithstanding our restrictions on capacity and social distancing and wearing masks, uh, it's probably still too early to tell on beaches, but New Jerseyans have been extraordinary from day one in terms of doing the right thing. And as we continue to open up, I have a high degree of confidence 
they will continue to do just that. And I know it's really important for you to contextualize improving numbers. You always say, but understand why. Every time I hear one of your pressers, you say, but remember why the numbers are going this way. It's because what we're doing. It's not that the models were wrong. It's not that I was lying to you uh, or I was falsely uh, concerned. It's because of what you're doing. And if we stop, the numbers will stop moving in the right direction. Is that still true to the same extent? 100% the case, Chris. And by the way, it's not as though we've escaped this without a heavy toll. We have over 11,000 precious brothers and sisters we've lost in this state. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I keep saying, listen, progress is great, uh, but we're not in the end zone yet. And, 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 and this is factual. In the here and now, if you look at hospitalizations per capita, new hospitalizations per capita, new fatalities per capita, we're still in the top handful of states. We are the densest state in America. You alluded to that in your comments a minute ago, and we're, it's usually a huge asset for us, uh, but we're paying a big price for it in this case. What does it mean to you that the president has said nothing about 100,000 people now lost to this? Listen, I will say this. I know what we've done in New Jersey. This is now at least a couple of months ago. We lowered all of our flags to half-mast, and they have remained that at that level, and they'll stay there. Secondly, each day in our press conferences, I know you've seen them, we eulogize a handful of folks that we've lost. The fear I have is as is important as the data is, and it is, believe me, we are moneyball about this, and you've got to be, we can never let it become abstract. We have got to remember that these are precious human lives. I, I, I speak privately with families each day of loved ones who are, who are lost, and these are, these are just extraordinary human beings, and we've got to remember uh, that they, they lived, that they had extraordinary lives, that they leave behind family and friends who will never forget the impact that they've had. Now, listen, Governor, I'm not trying to get you sideways with the president, and I respect your efforts, and, you know, that's why I invite you on the show. Um, but how difficult does it make the job that you say, look, you got to wear masks? Uh, I'll show you the data. I'll show you the models. And the president says, yeah, if you want to be a PC pansy, you need to wear the mask. I'm not wearing one of those masks. It's a joke. They're just trying to hype you up because they want to beat me, and they're trying to scare you into this COVID thing. How do you deal with that? Listen, we've been able to find uh, a, a lot of common ground with the, with the Trump administration, and, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. I don't pull my punches, and I know that he doesn't pull his. But I would just say this. I call it the Holy Trinity. So, and by the way, I'm watching Sanjay uh, religiously before, I, uh, before you got to me. Uh, social distancing, washing hands with uh, soap and water religiously, and wearing a face covering. I think... Those are the three. They're, they're little things, but they are huge game changers. We lived in, my wife and I lived in Hong Kong in the late 90s. We've got lots of friends there. They've got about a million fewer people than New Jersey, a million fewer people than New York City. They've had four people pass. And when you ask them what's the biggest game changer, it's the lessons they learned with SARS, bird flu, et cetera, in terms especially of wearing face coverings. And that's a mantra that we pound away on every day. How many people in this area have seen Asians almost exclusively over the years walking around with masks and people are, what are they doing? What's up with the masks? Now we know. Now we know. Uh, Mr. Governor, thank you so much uh, for what you're doing for your state and for coming on to tell the story of the challenges and the successes. Thank you very much. You will always have this platform to make your case. Governor Phil Murphy, God it's bless. A, always an honor to be with you. Thank you for having me. Take care. All right. So. Another big story. Uh, we saw the videotape 
of what happened in Minneapolis. We haven't seen the body camera video, but now we need context because people say, well, we didn't see what happened before. And you know, it's a little different from that one angle. How about somebody who saw with his own eyes what the rest of us still can't believe we watched for like an endless period, the needless agony of George Floyd. We have somebody, somebody who says they saw it, they talked to the officers, they got a feel for the officer's demeanor and recognition. That we need to hear, that's next. All right, we've got breaking news out of Los Angeles. Um, people who are enraged at the death of George Floyd have turned violent. Now look, I know people don't wanna hear this right now, but I'm not calling into protest when it involves violence. That's a riot, all right? I wanna show you the video of what's happening there. It's graphic. And you're gonna see someone get injured, but apparently the guy you're gonna see get hurt uh, is awake uh, and alert now, all right? The video from the scene shows it was a Black Lives Matter demonstration. Um, and that's why you'll see, you know, the white people there also uh, smashing the back windows of a police cruiser with a skateboard. At one point, several people jumped onto the cruiser. That's how this guy fell off. He must have knocked himself out when he did. Um, and he was motionless there for a while. The other cop car stops right next to him, obviously, to address the situation. He gets attacked um, by, you know, it's a riot. It just is. I'm sorry. When you, when you attack the police and you commit crimes and acts of violence, I know that Dr. King and others spoke about sometimes that a riot is the only voice of the voiceless, uh, but it, it just changes the meaning of a moment. And even in Minneapolis, which was what that sparked that, this is there. And the police chief said, look, this matters. People have to come out. They have to show their outrage. They have to show their fear. They have to show their shock. This is the way to do that. I only see leverage lost in these situations when you become what you oppose, when you become uh, anger without purpose, especially in a situation like this. I'll keep an eye on Minneapolis for you. Uh, and just so you know, we are working this case uh, every day. We're not having it just fed to us. We haven't seen the body camera footage yet from the police. Now, they'll say this is an ongoing investigation. My counter argument to that is, you see those people out in the street? This isn't happening in a vacuum, okay? Uh, the court of public opinion matters in situations like this. This is not a vacuum. That video has to come out ASAP in all of these cases, okay? Why? Well, what have we seen? George Floyd pinned on the ground with an officer's knee on his neck for a long time leading to his death. New surveillance video obtained by a nearby restaurant shows Floyd's initial point of contact with police. Now, here's my understanding of it. An officer escorts him out of an SUV, responding, according to police, to a supposed forgery in progress. That's what this was. This is what this started as. It wasn't a shootout. It wasn't a drug deal gone bad. It was a bad check. Once handcuffed, Floyd sits on the sidewalk. Moments later, he's escorted away, hands behind his back. The end of the video, it's unclear what happens. Maybe you tell better than I. But he appears to fall on the ground as they walk him toward the squad car. Watch. Right now. You see him go down? Now, I don't know if he hit his head or whatever there on the side of the vehicle. I don't know if he fell or he was pushed to the ground. The officers then have him back on his feet, and it's not clear at what point he was back on the ground again, as we see in the infamous video. What happened then and in the moments after? 
Video's all we have right now. They're the ones with the body cameras on. This is why they wear them. So until we get it, we have to work the story and get eyewitnesses. And we have one. Donald Williams. He says he was there calling on police to let Floyd up and watched as he was taken away in the ambulance. That is our witness. You just saw him. This is him. This is our witness. So this is our proof that he was there. Okay. He's here for his first TV interview. And Mr. Williams, I know that this is not a discussion uh, that is easy for you to have. I know you don't feel completely safe having it. And I thank you for taking the opportunity to do it with us tonight. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so please, from what we saw there, how did you come upon the scene and what was your initial take on what was happening? Yeah, it's a lot for me uh, to, you know, take in. but. Uh, I was really, it was a really little uh, average day to the corner store. Um, honestly, I was just really going to get something to drink from the store. Um, I'm in the neighborhood and uh, I, I chose Cubs to go to, a Cub to go to. And um, once I approached the the, the store, I, I seen uh, three uh, squad cars outside the store. You know, I didn't really think too much of it. You know, I live in a city. I'm from the city. You know, right. things happen in the city. You know, it's a lot of, you know, different things that happen. And the police got to do their job to protect everybody. And, you know, what on what not. That's what was going through my mind. So I was like another day. So uh, as I was walking, getting out the car, I was just hearing a lot of noise and uh, different motions of voices and at different tones, you know. And um, when I was about to walk in the store, like my spirit just like kind of stopped me. It was like. Maybe you shouldn't walk in the store. Maybe you should actually go over there and see what's going on. Because I usually just mind my business, you know, unless I don't need to, you know. And um, What did you see? Uh, as I was walking over there, I seen you know, a couple of people standing there first. You know, I seen a squad car and I seen one uh, Asian officer, Officer uh, Tao. Uh, and I heard people vocally speaking to an individual uh, about, you know, maybe you should, you know, you're cooperate and you're okay now you know maybe they're gonna be able to let you up you know and then I, I started hearing as I was walking another guy talking about he couldn't breathe and um, something about my stomach so um, I've been working with the Minneapolis Police Department with, through Peachy Luce's the clubs for the last 10 years so what I walked up and then doing personal security I just sat there and, and observed first to see what was going on to see if it was you know what was going on because I didn't know and uh, first thing I noticed was, uh, you know, um, I didn't know his name was at the time, but I think his, his name is Gray Floyd, uh, George, George Floyd, Floyd. <laughs> George Floyd. And uh, he was uh, actually, you know, panting for his life, you know, begging for, you know, his forgiveness. Like I pretty much saying he's sorry. He's going to do the right things. He want to get up. His his uh, stomach's hurting. Uh, he can't breathe. His nose is hurting, you know. And um, once I realized how the officer was on him, Everything that he was describing to me was sounded like a. How was the joke, officer? You know? uh, he had his knee, you know, across his neck, you know, so, and I'm not talking across the back of his neck. I'm saying across the blood part of his neck from here to here. So his knee, his knee wasn't from here to here, which is your spinal part. His knee was from here to here, which is your articles and your blood yeah, yeah. choke, you know, your um, veins and things like that. The things that cut your circulation off from your, your neck and your brain to your body part. You For know? how long do you think it was like that? I got there... 
at least eight to ten minutes because um, another witness walked up a little bit after me. And uh, at this time, I'm, you know, you can hear my voice in the video explaining to this officer what he's doing, what, what he's capable of and what they could not be doing at the what, moment. You what, know, what did, did anybody explain to you or did anything make sense to you about why were they just sitting there with this guy with his knee on his neck and the officers around? Like, why did it take so long? Uh, well, see, like I said, I didn't know what was exactly going on. So if you hear in the video, I actually asked him, I said, you know, uh, what's going on, officer? This is when I finally approached because the people said his blood coming out of his nose. And I'm noticing it now at the point his eyes is turning a, a different color, you know, and he saw about his belly hurts, which is pretty much your last move, bowel movement in, in your uh, life. And uh, so that's when uh, <clears throat> I started, you know, pleading with the officers, you know, and um nobody else really, I mean, there's only two or three other people that really spoke up, you know, about it. Me, another guy, and a lady off-duty off, off fire department. Lady. Did they give you any explanation as to why they were keeping him there and why it was taking so long? They said he was resisting arrest. And when he told me he was resisting arrest, I said, officer, he's not resisting arrest. You have your knee in him and you have handcuffs on him. He is detained at this moment. Officer Todd proceeded to say, well, this is what drugs do to you. And, you know, um, that's not what drugs do to you. Drugs don't get you killed. You know, by yeah, cop. Yeah. Either way, they seem to have him well in control. And control, did you make any sense of why they didn't just pick him up and put him in the car and arrest him, which is what the job was? Right. Uh, yeah, I didn't make no sense of it. Like I said, I work with a lot of cops in Minneapolis. A lot of them could tell you I, I've trained Mr. Marshards for the last 10 years on the Greg Nelson. Like me as a little guy, like I, did, I was a rented door at Pichu Luce's. I'm able to secure and control someone, you know, at five, six, that's yeah. 16, yeah. 620, if you're using the right technique. And they technically was not using professional technique. They no. were using a Nobody is trained no. to put their knee on somebody's throat as a suppression technique. Uh, it's not part of a martial arts. It's not even allowed. Uh, forget about no. fair fighting, but this is not what cops are supposed to do. And obviously no. uh, we know that too well now. Um, but yeah. The part that makes the least sense, did any of the cops, did you hear them talking to each other about why they couldn't just move him and get him out of the situation? <laughs> bro, they wanted to kill that man, bro. <laughs> like, I'm being 100, bro. They didn't speak. They didn't say nothing. The, the views in his eyes, bro. The man that had his, his knee on his chest, bro. He knew what he was doing. His shimmies in my man's neck, bro. He knew what he was doing. It's just like having a jiu-jitsu choke. If I'm here, I'm shivvying, I'm shimmying, I'm shimmying, I'm shimmying, boom, my choke's on there. I told him it was a blood choke. He knew it was a blood choke. He looked at me when I said it. He put his head down. He did not make any more gestures. He did not say any other thing. And the two other cowards that was on the other side of the the the, uh, the car, I didn't know nothing about. I didn't know about until I got videos in my social media and things like that. So they were the intent to smother my man and kill my man. And I seen it. I seen it in his eyes. I seen it in his demeanor. And I seen it in their movement. And Officer Tao didn't, he didn't partake in it, but he had control of what was going on on the other side of that car for me not to see what was going on. Because the people that know me personally know how I am. And I'm, I'm very good. I'm a controlled athlete. I'm a controlled person. You know, I have different levels to who I am. And I show my controlness out there in front of the world. I got letters, notes from multiple people that know me from growing up in the city that said I was the most control they ever seen in my life as I'm seeing another man that looked like me, that feels like me, that got the same complexion as me, lose his life to another man that had no senseless, he had no feeling, he had no remorse, he had shit in him, he had no feeling. I don't even think he had a heart at that moment. And he's gonna feel that for the rest of his life.
Just like I'm going to hear my man say this. I can't breathe. I want my mama. And I'm coming to find out that this man died two years on the day that his mom died. I'm a mama's boy, bro. Like, that shit hurts me deep down inside, bro. And, like, something needs to be done. Or something needs to be done. I know this is hard for you, especially having been there and that you wanted to help and that you were afraid this was going to happen. And I know the police tried to get you out of there and supposedly there is video of you showing restraint and just pushing hands away from you, but not engaging with the officer. Uh, and I know that's not easy in a situation like that. It's not, man. Like, like I said, I'm a trained athlete, bro. I put my hands up because I didn't know what he was going to do next. Like, he doesn't understand. I have multiple limbs. I could have did whatever I wanted to him, but I have, I have to go to my own kids. I got a family. Like, like <laughs> you know, so, so much emotions running into my life. <sighs> yeah, I'm, I was chosen for this. I don't even know why I was there, but uh, shit, I'm, I guess I was chosen for this shit, bro. Like, Listen, these, these situations, as you said, growing up where you are, you've seen a lot of this. Uh, you've seen a lot of ugly situations and a lot of things that don't make sense. Um, and hopefully, the only hope we can have here is that this is one too many uh, and that this gets the attention of justice that it deserves. I know there's been a lot of frustration in that city. And I know this is hard for you. Um, I appreciate you telling the story. I appreciate you sharing your emotion. I'll check in with you right after the show and see how your head and your heart are. All right? Yeah, I just want to say one last thing, man. I just want to say something to my mom, my family, my dad, my parents for making me who I am. Give me the energy to do that. My teachers, my coaches, like my support system in general, the wrestling world, the MMA world, bro. Like we need to make a change right here. We make it happen as a wrestling community. We a family as a Miss Martial Arts Listen. community, we a family as a black community, as America. We a family. We got to make a change, bro. You we all got to make a change. You know what? You're right. I'm wrong. Uh, this is a community discussion. You're living it there. You're living the reality. You're a set of eyes on the situation. You saw the duration. Do me a favor. Uh, if it's not too painful for you, just stay with me a few more minutes, all right? Let me bring in the mayor, uh, Jacob Fry, all right? Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you for joining us. Uh, listen, I, I just respect him so much for relaying uh, what he had to watch. Uh, you and I can only imagine uh, what it's like to see something that, let alone the identification that someone like Mr. Williams has, there but for the grace go I. That is not a message you want in your African-American community. Um, as you look at the circumstances right now, how are you seeing the due process of justice unfold here? Well, we need to have honesty right now and we need to have action. I mean, that video that was just referenced was hard. I mean, for, for five straight minutes, uh, a white officer on our police department, pressed his knee into the neck of a black man who was handcuffed, who was no threat, and was articulating very clearly how we, he was impacted, how his physical health was being damaged, uh, and how he couldn't breathe. This is not an instance of one or two seconds where you're forced to make a split decision. This is like five minutes, it's 300 seconds, and in any one of those seconds, 
You could have decided just to stop. You could have decided to listen to community. One of those officers could have told him to stop. I mean, I think one of the main questions for you to, to uh, reconcile for your community is why did it take so long? Uh, whatever their story is about how he was resisting arrest and they needed to do this because what, maybe, who knows, but the duration winds up destroying the rationale, Mr. Mayor. And have you been told anything about why they said they had to do this for so long and those other officers just sat there? No, I, I have not heard anything. Uh, you know, for the last 36 or 48 hours, I've been asking myself that uh, core underlying question, why is the officer that, that killed George Floyd not in jail right now. And I can't answer that question. And because of that, that's why I, I called for uh, the county attorney to, to charge the arresting officer earlier today. That's why we need to make sure, sure that we are seeing justice, justice for our black community, justice for George Floyd, uh, justice for our, our whole city. There have been so many people that have said, well, what do we need to do to start the healing? You know, we, we, we can't start the healing until we stop the bleeding. Uh, and it is, it is very real right now. There's a meme going around. I saw it from D.L. Hughley's site of it's not that racism is, on the, uh, is rising. It's that it's being seen, uh, that these videos are showing us practices that just don't bear any explanation other than the most ugly explanation. And the re one of the reasons I kept Mr. Williams is you got a lot of guys like Williams in your community. Uh, I mean, I, I think that he, what he did deserves respect weighing in in a situation like that. Uh, you can often become caught up in it on the wrong side of it pretty easily. Uh, and that's bravery and that's uh, citizenship. What do you say to Mr. Williams and so many young black men like him who hear this story and say, I could be next. That could have been me. Well, first, I, I thank Mr. Williams for coming on this show, for uh, speaking his truth. It is that kind of speech uh, that we need right now. It was honest. It was forthright. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that he had to witness that just horrid, horrid act. Uh, and you pointed out something that is correct, Chris, which is, you know, this is not just about this one instance. This is not just about that five minutes of time. We're talking about 400 years worth of this kind of racism. We're talking about 400 years worth of, of practices that this incident has stood on. And, you know, justice is, is the first step in this case, but it's not just about this case, and we still have a long way to go. Mr. Williams, is there anything else you want to say? Yeah, I, you know, I just want to tell everybody in America, you know, like, I've been through this before, you know. Uh, this is actually my my second, multiple times, actually, being a, a black male growing up in the city, you know. Courtney, back in high school when I was, like, 16, 15, 15 to 16, got killed over North Minneapolis, you know. And uh, my barber was actually filling me in on this. I'm like, man, how, how did I get involved in this? How much is this? Why am I a piece of this, you know? It comes back when I was a kid, man. North Minneapolis killed an unarmed black kid when I was a kid coming from the park, leaving a party. You know, we about to miss curfew. We all running so we can get home.
home. You know, we our only fears weren't even our parents. Our fears was the police, you know? Same with Courtney. He, he didn't even make it home that night because we seen the police. We didn't want to get called for curfew. They shot him in someone's backyard. So I've been through this already, you know? And, like, people was letting me know, like, this is why you here, bro. You got to speak the truth and let these people know the real truth about America, bro. Like, well, we not really accept well. it, you know? We we got to get make everybody unite, man. And, like, for, uh, our, our, uh, Governor Fry, man, like, we, we have to see action, bro. Like, we have to see action from North Minneapolis to South Minneapolis and Northeast all together. We need we need United from the police department to the fire department to the, the mixed martial arts schools. Like, you should be making these officers. They should be trained to mixed martial arts on a regular basis. Well, they should be able to, be able good, to detain someone without a, a gun or makes anything. A good point, Mr. That's Mayor. all I want to say. Well, thank you very much, first of all. Um, yeah, Mr. Mayor, he makes a couple of good points there. One is this comes back uh, to not just what's in people's hearts, but what's in their heads. Uh, you got to be trained in what to do and what not to do. Uh, and I don't know that that's what this situation is about, but we've certainly seen that play out in other ones. And transparency is really important, too. It often takes way too long for people to see what happens in cases like this. Now, we're told that the body cam video exists. Uh, is that your understanding as well? And if so, do you know anything about the status of its release? A uh, few pieces to comment on. Uh, first, uh, you're right that this particular technique is, is not authorized in, in any form. Uh, it is not part of the training. We've got all sorts of training from procedural justice training to implicit bias training to wellness training. Uh, our chief, Arredondo, who is a, a real leader in the black community, but also a leader nationwide for in chiefs for police departments, uh, has been instilling these values. And this runs counter, totally counter to everything uh, we've been pushing for. One of the pieces that we pushed for was was body cameras. Uh, you know, when when we came in, it was about 55, 50%, 55% compliance and turning the body cameras on, and now there's like 95% compliance. That's the first step. The second step is to get them released. Uh, and we have laws at the, the state level that prevent the automatic release of, of body cameras, um, but I want to get them released as soon as is humanly possible. Uh, and that means at a point where it's not going to hinder uh, the ultimate charging decision and, and, and the investigation that would lead to that charging decision. I've made very clear uh, that I think that the arresting officer needs to be charged. Um, that it needs to happen. It's, 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 it's been an, an unprecedented move as far as I'm aware in our city or state. But, you know, I've, there's all sorts of protocols and, and precedents that are like baked into the walls of of, of City Hall that'll tell you that you that, that, that you shouldn't act, that you shouldn't do this, that you shouldn't speak out because there's some, there's something around the next corner. Well, you know what? Like this is an instance where it needed to be said. Mr. Mayor, I appreciate it. And look, uh, justice is fairness under law. There's got to be due process. Uh, but when it comes to truth, transparency is truth and truth is trust from a community. And if they see what happened with their own eyes, they can judge it. And they'll know how it's judged by others as being fair or unfair. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much. Donald Williams. Chris, let me say one more thing, if I could. Yes, Mr. Mayor. Um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, you know, a core duty of mine as mayor is, is also to keep the peace. And that duty doesn't go away during times of difficulty. In fact, it is even more important. And so I'm imploring 
our city, I'm imploring our community. This is on all of us, our police officers, on community of all of us right now uh, to keep the peace. Right. And look, uh, this needs to happen. People have to come into the streets. They have to voice their outrage. Uh, it, is, uh, it is an echo of collective conscience. And people do know that when you turn to what you oppose and you become what you hate and you start committing crimes and you start becoming violent, uh, you change that leverage, you change that dynamic. That said, it is uh, easily understood how emotions often uh, run high. Mr. Mayor, thank you for making that point. Mr. Williams, thank you for making all your points. Donald, God bless you. I hope your head and your heart um, settle uh, in this situation. And I'll call you after the show and check on you. All right. Thank you both very thank much. You. Yes, thank you. All right. We're going to take a break and then we'll be right back. Thank you for being with me for that. It's one person coming in from China and we have it under control. 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. It's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle. It will disappear. Zero turned into five zeros with a one in front of it today. 100,000 gone in America three months since the first coronavirus death. This tragedy isn't just measured in the six-digit dead, but in the inaction. I'm reminding you of what Trump said, not just to cast blame. This isn't about gotchas. It's about what we haven't gotten. Many in our government underestimated what we faced back then, but unlike all the rest, Trump clung to his fantasy. He never caught up because he's never wanted it to be true. His resistance comes from the ugliest insistence. He thinks tamping down COVID makes reopening easier and therefore easier for him to win re-election. How do you know he's still stuck in that kind of denial? Well, how else do you justify no mention by our president of this country passing 100,000 dead? I'm struggling with how to even understand that number. I know that to those who lost someone or in too many families, more than one, the size of the pandemic, the size of the death is not what overwhelms. They're overwhelmed by the depth of the loss. Families are shattered. For the rest of us, the scale should fuel our collective conscience there, but for the grace go we. So many gone in a series of deaths that continue unseen. And that's a big part of this many times more over three months than in the single day of devastation on 9-11. But there, we saw the devastation, the falling towers, the scenes that are seared in the hearts and minds of way too many of us, way too many of us changed forever on that day. But here now, 100,000 dead. And just the other day, Trump said he wouldn't have done anything differently to change where we are. What would you have done differently facing this uh, crisis? Well, nothing. We've done, you know, amazing well. A hundred thousand dead. Explanation? Just one. Shameful self-preservation. You question that? Remember this. I don't take responsibility at all. I don't take responsibility at all. A president who takes no responsibility for what happens to America in a time of crisis. You've never heard that before. Here's the scariest part of the milestone to me. We're setting ourselves up for more. If we stay on the same course we're on as we reopen and don't do things differently, a lot more lives will be lost needlessly 
we don't do everything we can, if we keep finding reasons to do less, here's the tough question that we're going to have to answer, each and every one of us, because we're all in this together. Trite but true, my brothers and sisters. What I do, I do for you. What you do, you do for me and mine. That is the truth. Here's the question that we're going to have to ask at the end of the day, when we are truly unmasked in this reality. Can you live with knowing that you basically decided it's okay that others will die because you don't want to do more? Thank you for watching CNN Tonight with D. Lemon right now. Got a question for you. Yes, sir. So in that same vein, because we're talking about this, these viruses that are infecting America. Imagine when you said I do for what I do for you, I'm doing for me. What I'm doing for me, I'm doing for you. Imagine if that was me on the ground, how you would feel as a friend, as someone I spend a lot of time with. Imagine how people around this country feel when their friends like you, both of us are a different background, when their friends say nothing, when they do nothing, except send out a tweet or say, oh man, that's terrible. I can't believe that happens. And then when they see everyday racism, they don't stand up for it. Imagine how that feels to people of color in this country. It feels terrible. Is that really being a friend? And I'm not saying you specifically. You understand what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. I totally understand. And, you know, the only word I can use is just hurt. It all hurts. Uh, we didn't have the plan, uh, the show plan, the way it unfolded. I just, we just couldn't let Williams go. I mean, he was saying what you and I have heard, you know, you've heard in your own heart. I've heard from so many uh, people that I love that they're so afraid that it's going to be them. It's going to be their kid. And white people roll their eyes like, oh, come on, man. This only happens like once in a while. It doesn't have to happen that often. If every time it happens in your mind, it seems mm -hmm. to go uh, unanswered in terms of why it's okay. So we kept them on just so that people could hear how scary it is for someone to watch that and think. But that, that's a problem, Chris. It doesn't, it's not that it happens. It happens a lot. We just don't see it. We're just seeing from the video. This, mm -hmm. is, this is the reason that Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee. And then people were upset, and the President of the United States having the nerve to call him and others who were standing up for this sort of injustice to call them sons of bitches. This is why people are standing up, so that it doesn't lead to this. So that you aren't sitting at home saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Look at what they're doing to this man. This happens all the time. This is why he was doing it. And the, the nerve and the gall of people to say, oh my gosh, stop doing this. I want to enjoy my football game. Now think about that now in this context, how selfish that sounds and how you, how you might feel if that was your loved one on the ground and that there were people who have been protesting this all along and who, are, who have been fed up for years and they're trying to get your attention by something as respectful as taking a knee at a football game, yet you can call them sons of bitches, but then you look for an excuse for this police officer in Minneapolis saying, well, there must have been something that led up to this. The guy must have been resisting. Clearly, this just can't be the, the act of a, of a police officer or someone who is supposed to be protecting the community. Yes, it is. You, people who continue to look for excuses. Well, what is the rest of the video? Where's the rest of it? Wasn't he resisting? He must have been doing something terrible. He shouldn't have been in this position. Maybe he should have been complied. How many should have been complying? How many more excuses do you need to make? before you examine yourself and say, okay, maybe I need to wake up a little bit 
and take a good long look at what, what I've been doing. Maybe I need to understand or realize that the environment that this president has trafficked in can help to lead to these sorts of situations where people think that that sort of behavior, meaning the people who are doing these things, the people who are um, calling the cops on people falsely in Central Park, the people who are chasing people down the street in Georgia and killing them, that you may begin to think that your actions are normal, are normal. That you may begin to think that you as the preeminent voice can do things that are inhumane to other people and it will be accepted. The game was given away. The woman in Central Park said, I'm calling the cops and gonna say that this scary black man did something to me knowing that the cops would come there and probably be on her side and not his. The police officer, according to your witness, he looked him in the eye. He told the police officer, hey, stop it. You're going to kill the man. The cops said nothing. Maybe you shouldn't be on drugs. They gave the game away. That is the game. We can do it and we can get away with it. And no one is going to tell us any other. Uh, no one is going to tell us otherwise. We're not going to go to jail for it. Maybe I'll lose my job. I'm going to keep my pension, though, because guess what? The police association is going to fight for me. That is what has been happening in this country for years. And that's why the Black Lives Matter folks are out there. And that's why people are protesting, Chris. I'm not condoning people protesting, but let me tell you, people are tired of living in an occupied country, a free country, that's a country that's supposed to be free, yet they are occupied. So they are frustrated and they are angry and they are out there and they're upset. You shouldn't be taking televisions, but I can't tell people how to react to this. I don't know how it is to live under those circumstances in those neighborhoods. I do live in Harlem, but I am lucky enough that I have this job that keeps me protected from many of those things. Other people don't have that. I'm sorry to go, I'm sorry to keep going on and on, but this is how you and I talk. And this is how we continue to talk. And I think that every person out there, listen, if you're black and you don't have a white friend, get one and tell them what's on your mind. And if you are white and you don't have a black friend, then get one and let him tell you what is on or her, what is on her, their mind. Because that is the only way we're gonna solve this. It is not upon, it is not incumbent upon black people to stop racism. To stop this, it is incumbent upon people who hold the power in this society to help to do that, to do the heavy lifting. And guess who that is? Who is that, Chris? White people. I don't talk much, but when I do, I make it count. I think that the protests make sense. Uh, I don't think you can process the anger without them. Now, you start committing crimes and it's a riot. That's not protest. That's not. No, that's I a get what you're saying. It's a I'm different saying. issue. But at the same time, you know, I remember what Dr. King said about this. And I understand that it's not easy to keep emotions in check when nobody seems to be keeping them in check uh, when you are the victim. I get it. What, what hurts most, I think, in this particular fact pattern, other than the duration, is why the hell were the other cops standing there doing nothing? Nobody is trained to put a knee on a throat. That, because that, it's not about training. It's not about police training. It's about the way we have been trained in society to react to those things. It is okay. Now imagine if that was an 18, 19, 20-year-old white kid on the ground. Mm -hmm. Do you think those officers would be doing the same thing or reacting the same way? That's the troubling question. That's the, the meme that's going that, around right now with the cops, with the black kid on the ground saying hello to the white guy in camo with the AK-47 and the mask who was protesting in Michigan that when it's white people with guns and they're out and they're angry and their faces with cops. Didn't see any of that. Everybody's civil. 
Didn't um, see any of that. But the flag burning, spitting bad. in police officers' faces, yelling, yelling at police officers armed, armed with heavy weaponry. Didn't see any of that. Did you see anybody with their foot on anybody's no, neck? I mean, you know, you've heard of people make make it a joke, but it's it's funny because it's it's tragic and sad. If black people said, let's all go out and get guns and start the protest, that would be the fastest change of gun law culture in this country. Yeah. If you started to have African-Americans buying up AR-15s or whatever you want to call them and going out and protesting legally with legal weapons, you'd see a change in the laws. Yeah. And that's sad. Yeah. And if you see a, a black man who has this platform, a television show, who has the gall enough to tell you how it is, guess how many people are going to call him racist and a race baiter? Who cares? Check out my social media feed and see what happens. Who cares? But you say what's true and you say what's real. And look, you, <laughs> you're not exactly getting it from the second source. You lived it. Yeah, I don't care. Go for it. I really don't care. You can save it or you can put it out there. I do not care. I am, I, I am so frustrated. Listen, I, I'm not even, I have, I'm gotta, I've got to talk about the, the big story as well that's happening in the news, and that is coronavirus. But I'm so sick of, as a person of color, especially a black man, as my actions, my thoughts, whatever I do is being seen as more aggressive or somehow sinister just because of this shell that I am in. I am sick of it. I'm sick of having to monitor myself because of this body that I'm in. It is exhausting. It is mentally and physically exhausting. And that is how people of color feel in this country. And you know what? I love you for listening to me here on television, and I love you for doing it in person. So thank you. I love you. You're a gift to me as a friend, and you're telling yes. people what they need to hear. And you're telling them because you do care as much as anybody I know. Thank you, Chris Cuomo. I'll see you soon. I love brother. you, brother. Love you as well. This is San Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.